Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to this special edition of the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the Green Nonprofit Show. You know going green is the right thing to do for the environment and your organization, but budgets are tight and knowing how to get started can be a mystery. This show provides the practical advice on going green you and your colleagues need. While each week the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart Radio Show provides advice on fundraising, board development, and social media, this special edition is all about helping you go green on a nonprofit budget. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, this show draws from experts around the world and his book, The Nonprofit Guide to Going Green, available on Amazon.com and at GreenNonprofits.org. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach The Green Show are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofits. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. Remember, just like our weekly show, this is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach, The Green Show, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach. It's great to uh, be back here with The Green Show. Of course, uh, uh, going green for your organization is an extremely important topic, and we're in partnership today with GreenNonprofits.org. So check out GreenNonprofits.org and make sure that you sign up for their newsletter so that you will be up to date on all the information for that organization. This is Ted Hart, uh, your host uh, for the show. Uh, today we are coming to you live from the national headquarters of the Charities Aid Foundation of America, and today is February 19, 2013. Those of you who are familiar with the show know that we always start with Page One News. As the announcer mentioned, when we get to our page two expert today, you can call in and ask questions at 347-324-3080. You also can join us over in the chat room, and I see a few folks uh, over in the chat room right now, so you can ask questions there, or you can email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. You can follow along in the radio links by going to tedhart.com. Click on radio links, and you will find great resources highlighted for you right there. And you can follow along with not only the links from today's show, but all of the links for all of the Nonprofit Coach radio shows going all the way back to the archives of 2012 and 2011. Uh, First up here on the Nonprofit Coach and the radio links you will find coming to us from the LinkedIn blog, uh, Meg Garlinghouse has posted information on LinkedIn Board Connect, and this is all about helping nonprofits find board members on LinkedIn. Uh, Terrific new service. Um, You want to read all about uh, the background information where they're introducing uh, this new service, Um, but also um, outlining to you the benefits of serving on a nonprofit board uh, and how you uh, can either get involved with the board or find that next terrific new board member. And that link is available in the radio links uh, today here on the Nonprofit Coach of the Green Show. Next up here uh, on the Nonprofit Coach is bringing a, a good friend of ours back here to the show. Of course, uh, we're just coming back from uh, holiday hiatus. This is our second uh, show of 2013. Uh, and part of the tradition of this show is our uh, partnership with the Association of Fundraising Professionals and John Wiley & Sons, known as the AFP Wiley Radio Show. Uh, that show will take place each and every month here on the Nonprofit Coach, as it has 
uh, it, it did last year as well. And Susan McDermott is with us here live uh, from Wiley uh, to announce uh, who will be our guest next week on the AFP Wiley radio show. Hi, Ted. Susan, How are you? Welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach. Hi. Thank you so much, as as always, for having me. And um, I'm eager to tell your audience the uh, the author of the and, and the book that you'll be discussing next week. I, I hope you are well rested since we've had a few weeks off since uh, our last time here together. And I will just let our readers know that over in the radio links today, we have provided them a direct link to the entire AFP Fund Development Series, of which you draw from. So, Susan, drum roll, uh, who will be um, our top speaker for next week? Oh, your next your next speaker is uh, Michael J. Rosen, who is the author of Donor-Centered Plan Gift Marketing, um, part of the AFP Fund Development Series, as you've mentioned. And um, basically, the book helps nonprofit organizations move beyond traditional marketing techniques that have historically yielded only modest results and reveals how putting the focus on the donor can produce the best outcomes for all. And um, a great thing about this book is uh, Michael and the book uh, were the um, recipients, they were the winners of the Skystone Partners Research Prize. So um, well, that's, a, that's a very prestigious prize. Please absolutely. A little bit about that, and, and uh, that's no cakewalk to learn that, to win that prize. No, absolutely not. I mean, it was there was a there's a committee and um and many books were nominated uh, uh for for the prize and and he was um selected as the winner and um I was so happy for him. It's a great book. It's it's um 300 and over almost 350 pages and and um really great uh marketing effort by by Michael to get the word out about his book and he continues to talk about it and I know he's so eager to talk to your audience next week and share what he's learned. Well, we're eager to have him here on uh, on the show, and because we're uh, just coming back from the uh, the holiday hiatus, and this is the first time you and I have had an opportunity to talk about about the AFP uh, Fund Development Series and the AFP Wiley Radio Show here on the Nonprofit Coach. The Association of Fundraising Professionals represents over 26,000 members in more than 170 uh, chapters. Having your book chosen to be part of the AFP Fund Development Series is quite an honor. Um, How did Michael's book and others and throughout the year you'll be uh, bringing us some of the uh, top experts in the nonprofit field uh, through the promotion of these books, how does uh, one get involved? Well, uh, the the first step is um, is to go visit the AFP site, and thank you very much for linking to it from your from your um, your web page. But visiting AFPnet.org and uh, the proposal guidelines. I guess the first step would be to to submit a proposal, and the proposal guidelines are there on the site for anybody to download and and fill out with their ideas and submit it to the committee. We meet um, we meet three to four times a year, uh, usually via a conference call, but once a year in person at the annual conference, which is coming up in April, as you know, in April in San Diego. So we'll be meeting face-to-face. And uh, there's, the committee is comprised of an international team of fundraisers. About There's about um, 15 of us, and we review the proposals and, and talk about the um, – Talk about the the literature and the the body of literature that's out there for fundraisers and what what might be missing, what what things are happening, and what new topics we can add to our list of um, of interests. So it's it's a great committee. I've been involved with them for twelve years, my twelve years at Wiley, and uh, I've I've enjoyed every minute of it. Well, we certainly appreciate your partnership with this show and the the careful, thoughtful work that your committee does and providing a balanced um, educational opportunity through the AFP Fund Development Series. And we certainly hope that we help bring these books alive uh, through the AFP Wiley Radio Show and bringing uh, some of the top authors and top thinkers in uh, the fundraising and philanthropy uh, uh, sector to to the radio show. So uh, Susan McDermott uh, from John Wiley & Sons, thank you for coming on and uh, introducing us to 2013 in the AFP Wiley uh, radio series, uh, and next week we'll be kicking that off. Thank you so much, Ted. It's my pleasure to be here as always. That talk to you next month. Okay, take care. Bye bye. All right, bye now. Uh, back here on uh, page one, I uh, want to draw your attention to a link to the top 10 nonprofit coach episodes of all time. Uh, you'll be able to read through and see these are the highest rated shows uh, of all time here on the nonprofit coach, and we are fast approaching three years on uh, on the Internet for um, our uh, live show and podcast. 
And what's really interesting to me as you read through um, the top ten is last year was absolutely explosive here uh, on the nonprofit coach, tripled the audience uh, listenership um, here on the nonprofit coach, and every single one of the shows uh, in the top ten list of all time are from uh, 2012. So thank you to all of our guests uh, throughout 2012, and in particular uh, those who made uh, the top ten list. And please read through because you'll see some of the uh, brightest stars in the nonprofit sector. A little bit of a uh, a gift, I think, maybe for uh, uh, for our listeners today. If uh, if you've been listening to uh, the nonprofit coach, the Green Show, for a while, you'll know what a fan I am uh, of the original uh, Lorax movie uh, and the uh, Lorax uh, book. Uh, by Dr. Seuss. Uh, and uh, today in the radio links, we are providing you with uh, a, an e-book uh, of the original Lorax uh, a book by Dr. Seuss. So uh, if you're a fan as I am and you haven't uh, uh, brushed up on uh, your original Lorax, um, have a listen, uh, have a read. Uh, the e-book is now available over at tedhart.com. Click on radio links and you'll find uh, the great links there. It's my pleasure uh, now to uh, uh, introduce you to uh, a gentleman who has been ver- working very, very hard in the green nonprofit sector. Uh, today, John Litzelschwab is here with us. Uh, he is a professor emeritus of physics at Dickinson College. Um, he also taught an environmental science course for four years and helped form an environmental science uh, department at Dickinson College. His interest and energy conservation dates all the way back to the energy crisis of the 1970s, and he authored a book in 1980 called Household Energy Use and Conservation. He retired in 2003, but certainly did not give up his passion and his love uh, of the environment. He moved to the Menno Haven Retirement Community and helped uh, initiate uh, the formation of a green team in 2010. But that wasn't enough for John, and we're honoring him today, and we're quite honored to have him come and share his message of why he then uh, sought to inspire uh, the residents of uh, Menno Haven uh, to become a certified green nonprofit, certified green nonprofit by greennonprofits.org. You can go to that website to learn all about the process for becoming a certified green nonprofit. But right now, today, uh, we have John Litzelswab with us, who has been through that process. Congratulations, Mr. Litzelswab. Thank you. Now, that's, uh, there's, there's a good body of work that you have to go through to become a certified green nonprofit. You must earn 100 points uh, in each of the various categories. Some are required. Uh, and while it's not maybe the most difficult thing you'll do in your in your life, it is perhaps a very satisfying thing to know that an organization has completed a body of work that's meaningful for the environment. So help for our listeners today, uh, who probably because they're listening to The Green Show today, already know that the environment is important. But why do you think becoming certified is an important public statement? Well, I think it says something about the institution that we're, we're here, that we we uh, care about the environment, that we're not just uh, uh, doing our, our things as usual. And on top of that, I think what, what also helped me convince others is that it saves us money. It's, uh, I think everything we've done so far, we, we've saved money. And well, say, so say that again, because, of course, uh, the economy continues to be difficult for a lot of nonprofits. And moving in the process of becoming a green nonprofit and and uh, uh, learning how to go green and making substantive changes within your organization can feel like an awful lot of work and maybe just a, a whole lot of cost. But you're saying there's a bottom line savings for the organization. That's got to be good news. Yeah, it's uh, when we first got into recycling. Uh, we, we weren't recycling paper, and, and when we started doing that, it turns out that, of course, we pay so much per ton for trash, and we're saving that, that money for the uh, recycle. Uh, we also found out that we, because uh, people recycled, they didn't have as much trash to pick up. So uh, when the uh, grounds crew would pick up the, the weekly trash, or actually they were doing biweekly, could now change to a weekly schedule, and that's saved on gas and so forth. So it, it, there, there are lots of lots of, of benefits you don't realize uh, that that come out of this when when you you go green. And of course, those are long long term benefits because cutting down on the use of products and cutting down on the cost of 
of, uh, of transportation and, and products of that sort um, are cumulative over time. They're not just one-time savings. Right, right. It's, uh, it's, it's you know, over time. We're having an energy audit done. We were going to do this anyway. Uh, and and uh, the, the company that's doing it shows that if you do this and that and that, and how much you're going to save in, in, in 10 years. Uh, and, and there's the large amounts of money in there involved in that. So, Now, how was your um, interaction with green nonprofits? I know that you worked very uh, closely with Diane Peach throughout the, the process. Did you feel supported, and it, was this something that was very difficult for you to accomplish? Or give us a sense of, of uh, how the process was for you. The process was, was very nice. Uh, the, the problem with... The, the program right now for large institutions is that there are a lot of things that, that don't mesh up with, with what we can and can't do. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think the, the, the measures are designed for small office situations. Uh, for example, uh, buying uh, shade-grown coffee. Uh, now, if we try to buy do that for this institution, it costs thousands of dollars more because we have a lot of coffee. It's not just like a, a, a you know brew a pot a day or so forth. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, things like buying things on, in bulk, which we do normally, we were able to, to satisfy that, that easily. There's a, so, so there's a balance. There's some things that for larger organizations uh, create a, a bigger bottom line, uh, whereas there are some aspects of the review process that might be more suited for uh, for smaller organizations. Yeah, yeah. And, and there are also things which, uh, you know, uh, if had guidelines for large institutions that, that certain things would be more important, like recycle. Uh, that, that's, that's a huge part of, of uh, going green in, in a large institution. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we worked with, with Diane uh, and very nicely, and uh, we, we uh, turned in what we had done, and they agreed with that we had made the, the effort. So that was, was great. Uh, well, I, I, I'm very impressed with uh, the the extra effort that you put into uh, helping an organization of your size uh, become a certified green nonprofit. Again, uh, congratulations on that. What tips or suggestions do you have for our listeners today uh, who might be thinking of starting the process, and, and maybe it just seems a little overwhelming? Well, it, it, it took a lot of meetings, and we sort of – uh, go through them slowly. There, you know, when you have a hundred and some measures, which you try to, or maybe 75 or 80 measures, and you try to satisfy 50 of them, uh, just go through very slowly. Take a good look at what you uh, are doing right now, and if, if you don't feel it's adequate to satisfy that requirement, say, well, what can we do now to satisfy it? Sometimes it's just doing a little extra, and, and other times you say, well, I just can't do it. So right. it's it's a, it's a, a and not all of the, uh, the the suggestions in that are required, right? There are no, some no. that are required, and then others that that you're able to find those things that are possible for your own particular situation. Right, right. And, and there are some just aren't applicable. And uh, the there was one that put stickers on uh, light switches to to tell people to turn off lights. Well, it turns out in the nursing center you have to sanitize those things every day, so right. that that just wouldn't work. So you have right. to work around what what will work for your institution, and what won't. What it what is possible? Yeah, it's not yeah. it's not meant to be uh, an onerous process, but one that uh, demonstrates a body of work that does ultimately make a difference. And and having so many nonprofits come together and become certified uh, adds up to good news uh, for the environment. Uh, John Litzelswab, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay. Uh, on the nonprofit coach, we really appreciate the hard work that you put into becoming a certified uh, green nonprofit. And please share our good wishes with everyone back at Menno Haven. Will do. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's uh, John uh, Litzelswab, who uh, headed up the uh, committee uh, over at uh, his retirement community, uh, and they were successful in becoming a green nonprofit, a certified green nonprofit. So please go to greennonprofits.org, uh, click on certification. You can Start the process. There's no charge at all to start the process um, and utilize the online tools uh, to help you determine what are those things uh, that you've already done. Now, you may have already earned several points. The experience is, is that most nonprofits that are thinking of becoming certified have already earned as much as half the points that they need to become certified. But as Mr. Litzelswab just mentioned, uh, there are then those issues that you're going to prioritize and what changes are possible 
for your particular type of organization. Virtually no two organizations become certified in exactly the same way, and that's why there are options for the certification process uh, because each organization is unique in their own way. Um, so back here on uh, page one news, just to remind you that you can follow along uh, with the uh, all of the links here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, by going to tedhart.com and click on radio links. And with that, it's now time for us to head over to our page two expert. It is my pleasure to welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach, The Green Show, Barbara Wiseman. Barbara is with the Lawrence Anthony Earth Organization, LAEO. She is the international president. Over the past 30 years, Barbara has worked with a variety of international organizations from helping displaced refugees from nations as diverse as China, Iran, Iraq, Vietnam, and Laos to resettle in their new American homes to introducing effective management principles to business and government leaders in Russia and Mexico. In 2003, Lawrence Anthony, a world-renowned conservationist, invited her to help him create the Lawrence Anthony Earth Organization, an international nonprofit dedicated to investigating and sorting out truth from fiction in environmental issues, and then introducing workable solutions uh, for real problems that face us in these areas. As international president, she has spearheaded the LAEO organization's U.S. activities, including a campaign to clean up the toxic environment in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, the creation of environmental workshops for school children, and the creation of spectacular edu uh, educational echo safaris uh, in South Africa. So uh, needless to say, no moss grows on Barb Barbara Wiseman. She is a very, very busy person uh, who is out there fighting on behalf of the environment all over uh, the world. And welcome here again uh, to the nonprofit coach, The Green Show, Barbara Wiseman. Hi, Ted. Thanks very much for having me back. Well, Barbara, it's uh, we we just uh, didn't feel that we uh, we had quite enough last time that we chatted because there's so much that's going on uh, with your uh, your organization. Now, uh, I, I want to start off with making sure that uh, from your own words, uh, you have an opportunity to help our listeners today uh, understand what is the Lawrence Anthony Earth Organization. And I know that in the past you've sort of been uh, referred to as the Earth Organization. But in, in sort of a rebranding, uh, you want to make sure that uh, everyone uh, is recognizing that uh, Lawrence Anthony is where it started, uh, and uh, Lawrence Anthony is a big part of the branding of your organization. Help us understand all that. Sure. Um, Lawrence was a, a world-renowned conservationist. He was uh, had a couple of things that he was three things actually was very well known for. One was his extraordinary, almost mythological relationship with a herd of wild elephants that he had uh, rescued and that uh, lived on his private game reserve in South Africa. And uh, his, you know, it, it um, uh, became a worldwide, you know, sensation, media sensation uh, that CNN and BBC and NBC, a, lo a lot of different organiz uh, media organizations went down there because nobody could believe that somebody could have this kind of relationship with a herd of wild elephants. And, um, you know, literally every time he would go away from the reserve, the night that he would return, the whole herd would always magically show up at his house to see him. And unfortunately, he passed away in March of last year. And uh, he was 300 miles away in Johannesburg. And the night that he died, um, the herd walked 12 miles to his house and uh, stayed there for a few hours in mourning. So oh my goodness! Wow, yeah. well, what what an interesting uh, story, and that and that really had not been experienced before. No, uh, not not like that. And that was um, uh, it, it was actually immortalized in a, a book. Not obviously his passing, but he wrote a book about this the, the relationship that he had with him. He had been dubbed by the the media the Elephant Whisperer. And so he wrote a book, and his publisher insisted that the title of it be The Elephant Whisperer. Um, but it's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. You can get it on Amazon.com. And it's the story of how this relationship between him and the elephants developed, and it is a remarkable story. 
But additionally, he's the man who went into Baghdad at the very beginning of the war, completely on his own in 2003, and rescued the staff and the animals of the Baghdad Zoo. He was there for five and a half months, and that was also a, a very large um, uh, media story and continues to be, and a, and a book was written about that called Babylon's Ark. Um, the third thing that he was extremely well-known for is that he actually got a war stopped in the Congo. Uh, it was the longest-running war in uh, civil war in the world between the Lord's Resistance Army and the Ugandan government. And for two years, he was actually able to get that war stopped. And, and uh, that is a third book, actually, called The Last Rhinos, because he was going into to rescue the last of the species of rhino and found that the you know the source of the demise was was this ongoing war so he managed to get the war stopped and it, it's really <laughs> just an absolutely extraordinary person so when Lawrence and I started this organization in uh, late 2003 um, we named it the Earth Organization but after he passed away last year we decided that we wanted to make sure people understood that that we really were going to continue the goals and purposes that he had had envisioned for the group, and so we added his name to the organization and made it the Lawrence Anthony Earth Organization. Well, it's a wonderful uh, tribute, uh, of course. Uh, help us understand uh, with with that uh, that amazing uh, history of the man that uh, uh, bears the name of the organization. Um, what is the the future for uh, for your organization? What are the goals uh, that that you think the next several years? that will define the Lawrence Anthony Earth Organization? Well, we currently have about, uh, we have 23 chapters in 21 countries, and so you know, I expect that, that that will, our expansion will continue, uh, you know, and, and grow exponentially. Our local, ch- our chapters, our smaller local chapters, take on very specific um, uh, environmental issues that are important to their area and, and address those. The U.S. headquarters and the international headquarters in South Africa um, are taking on global global campaigns. And one of the things that I'm most interested in um, uh, worldwide is the subject of oil spill cleanup uh, around the world. This is a, a huge issue that um, uh, a lot of people really don't realize what an, what an enormous issue it is and how badly it's impacting the waters of the world. Um, and and uh, the the EPA has uh, has uh, issued several uh, statements regarding that topic, and your organization, in about ten days' time, will be releasing a paper that's going to say what? Well, uh, let me give you a little background on this, uh, so that you understand the importance of this paper. Um, uh, for three years now, since the the uh, BP uh, the beginning of the BP blowout. In, in the Gulf of Mexico, we uh, were the first thing that we had to do. Uh, I was familiar with a a methodology called bioremediation, which probably a, a, a number of, of your listeners are familiar with. And basically, it means utilizing Mother Nature to clean up toxic sites. Mother Nature will, in her own good time, eventually clean up the toxic site if left to her own devices, but because of the toxicity, it may take a lot longer than what would be optimum uh, and therefore then be, um, you know, dangerous to the environment, to the wildlife, to humans, etc. So you, in, in cleaning up any kind of a toxic site, you're doing that because you want to, uh, you know, make it possible for living organisms to survive from the smallest microbes up to, up to the largest. But there is a, a technology called bioremediation, which utilizes natural and natural occurring microbes to clean up um, toxic toxic sites and to speed that process up enormously. And some of those products work in certain types of situations and don't work well in others. And and um, uh, you know and and uh, there's a, a wide variety of products out there. We found I knew I knew that this this uh, existed, this technology existed, so when the BP oil spill happened, I watched to see what were they going to use to clean up clean up the waters, and uh, thinking, of course, that they would find the least destructive, most effective um, solution possible, and was appalled to find that they utilized the worst possible, most t- 
toxic, most expensive, least effective uh, uh, product, um, and that was highly, highly destructive, extremely dangerous to the public's health, um, tremendously destructive to the fisheries, uh, to the quality of the water, to beachgoers, to the seafood eaters. I mean, it was really, really a bad, bad uh, solution, and I put solution in quotes. And, and where, why would they make a decision of that sort? Was there research out there suggesting to them that that was the correct approach or, or just didn't know better and this is what you're trying to help draw attention to to make sure that when these sorts of things happen there is a body of knowledge that can be turned to to understand the the best way for the environment to heal itself well that's a that's a great question you know we it really took us some serious research to uncover what was going on but we did and one of the key things that we found was that when a spill happens, decision makers turn to protocols that are contained in guidance documents that are put out by the EPA. And when we researched those documents, we found that they were antiquated, they were misleading in parts, and some of the very key points were absolutely inaccurate. And the result of that was that anyone reading them would be mistakenly turned off to non-toxic methods and specifically guided towards using that one product, effectively creating a monopoly for that one product. And um, so in the process... So is, it, is this a, an issue of successful marketing on the part of a big business um, that hurts the economy or the environment, or uh, is this just uh, bad research that was outdated that was used inappropriately? Uh, your, your first is exactly what was going on. Yeah, yeah. This so, is product so even that though is, research is would, would clearly show that the product was a disaster for the environment, uh, because one monopoly was able to make money, they were willing to sell out the environment. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, the you know it's known how destructive this this uh, product is, and the. the uh, it was actually used, or a version of it uh, was used on the Exxon Valdez, and it is one of the reasons why you know you can still why the fisheries have completely collapsed. Collapsed, you know there was a uh, you know thriving, abundant herring uh, fishery uh, system there with three very large processing plants, and they're closed now, and the the uh, you know the herring fishing uh, industry is there because of this, the use of this extremely toxic product. And that toxic product killed off the microbes um, in such a way, the naturally occurring microbes in such a way that it slowed down. As slow as the oil cleanup would have been by Mother Nature, it is now even slower because they use that, that product. The one thing that that product does do and why, it's, why it is, uh, why some would like it, is that when a responsible when an uh, an oil company or or someone has a large oil spill, they are there's a fine to pay to the EPA, which is between a thousand and four thousand um, dollars per gallon spilled. So if you can sink the oil beneath the surface so that you can't see it, it's harder to quantify the oil, and therefore you can negotiate the size of your fines. So you'll find that um, it has been the the norm to sink the oil as quickly as possible, and um, you know, quite frankly, the EPA has been in collusion with that because they've they've allowed that. Um, uh, you know, in the in not to get into any kind of conspiracy theory, you know, uh, appearance or anything at this. I mean, it's very likely that just. And you know some of the incorrect information has been taken at face value mm-hmm. because it appeared to be coming from authorities rather right. than rather than people really looking for themselves and right and, and I suppose the future will will bear that story out because uh, wanting to you know be as uh as open minded to the topic and 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 personally not being someone who uh, is necessarily drawn to conspiracy theories. Um, I suppose that now that you're going to be putting this information out, it's going to be 
freely available for correct decisions to be made in the future, um, the, the story will be told by, you know, our, our environmentally sound and scientifically sound uh, practices now followed because the information is readily available um, or uh, because of some of these uh, maybe nefarious benefits that come from using bad uh, approaches uh, to clean up. If those continue to be the processes, then, then I suppose you know why it was done. Yes, exactly. Well, it's interesting, you know. There's a there is a um, uh, in the uh, Code of Federal Regulations, CFR 40. Um, there is a guideline called the um, National Contingency Plan for Oil Spill Cleanup, and on in that in those guidelines is a product schedule, and it costs a lot of money to go through the testing necessary to become a product on that product schedule. It's called the NCP list for short, but it doesn't matter how great your product is. If you're not on that list, then when an oil spill in U.S. navigable waters happens, you can't even be considered by law. You can't be considered to be used. So you have to be on that list. But out of the 200 products that have come and gone on that list in the last 25 years, when an oil spill happens, there's only one product that the EPA has ever approved, and it's this one very, very toxic product. So right. That you is, can't really, I, I suppose, can't really blame businesses for wanting to rely on products that, that are approved for, you know, to protect themselves perhaps from uh, from uh, from legal considerations. Uh, but the issue that you're raising is this outdated, antiquated information that is uh, timely to be updated from the EPA. Uh, hopefully you're putting some energy be, behind that. Um, we're going to take okay, a, a quick uh, break. Uh, Barbara Wiseman, uh, the international president uh, of the Lawrence Anthony Earth Organization, is with us live here on the Nonprofit Coach, The Green Show. And, Barbara, when, when we come back, I want to take all this wonderful information in terms of process and focus on the environment and bring it uh, uh, full circle back for nonprofit organizations in terms of the messages that they should learn um, from all of this in terms of preparing to be more environmentally sensitive um, and preparing their organizations hopefully to become a certified green nonprofit. Um, so if we can bring all that back, we're just going to take uh, a really uh, quick break here on the nonprofit coach. Okay, great, Ted. I just want to point out uh, here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach, get your uh, calendars out just to uh, remind you of the shows that are coming uh, up here on the Nonprofit Coach. As Susan McDermott pointed out, we will next week here on February 26th, we will have the AFP Wiley radio show with Michael Rosen uh, here with his uh, terrific new award-winning book, Donor-Centered Planned Giving. Of course, that's an important topic for all nonprofits who are serious about raising money. Uh, and then uh, here on March 5th, uh, Amy Eisenstein will be with us um, to help you prepare for 2013 and raising more money uh, with less. And then uh, I'm, I'm very excited about this, and I hope that you will plan on joining us for March 12th. This is going to be our big third anniversary show uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach, and the lineup of uh, experts throughout the nonprofit sector who are going to uh, be calling in and celebrating with us on the third anniversary show is is really uh, quite uh, heartwarming. And, and uh, as I shared with you earlier, the show has tripled its audience. Uh, we are now the largest, uh, most listened to uh, show in the nonprofit fundraising sector, uh, and I'm very, very excited about that. So I hope you've got those uh, those dates and those uh, terrific uh, speakers on your uh, on your calendar, and you'll plan. And joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're live here uh, on The Nonprofit Coach the Green Show with Barbara Wiseman from the Lawrence Anthony Earth Organization. Uh, so, uh, uh, Barbara, 
bring this uh, this wonderful wealth of information that you have learned and that your organization provides around the globe um, and, and help our listeners today uh, who are either struggling with becoming more green, trying to decide how do they make the case for becoming more green and potentially becoming um, a, a, a certified green nonprofit. Uh, what message do you have for, for those listeners? You know, Ted, I think there's a... Um how I'd like to approach that today is to discuss the importance of actually doing enough research before one takes on any project to make sure that you're actually handling, when you start, when you do your project, that you're actually handling the source of the problem so that you're going to get the result that you want of whatever the decaying situation was, for example, that you're, you're trying to take on actually reverses and heads in the direction that you want it to go. Um, it's, you know, I, I too often see organizations or people um, uh, listening to the media, for example, and getting, um, uh, and not doing, you know, just, just basing their information just on media and not actually looking for themselves. There's an interesting, in the, in the, in the industry of public relations, there's an interesting, interesting datum that is known, which is that when a person hears the same quote-unquote fact or you know, data from three seemingly you know, uh, separate sources, they begin to think that, oh, well, this must be true because I heard it from this person and I heard it from that organization and I heard it from you know, that, that government uh, you know, uh, uh, official. And so... And so it is a, a technology, actually, in doing public relations to plant information in a variety of different places so that people are hearing it from different sources. And then suddenly it becomes the truth, whether it is or not. And it's so important, you know, our, our, it's so important to be, if you're, if you're handling a situation, to really be handling the source of the problem. I think I talked about this on on the last time I was on, and excuse me if I if I repeat myself, but it, no, but it's good to repeat yourself because these are important messages. Yeah, and, and I think this is a great analogy because it, people can quickly get it that that if you're on the Titanic and you've hit the iceberg, there are so many things that you can do on that ship that will quote make it better, but. You know, so you can do things like you can yell at the captain and and threaten to sue him. You can, um, you know, fix the engine. You can get people back on board that fell overboard. You can rearrange the deck chairs and make them more aesthetically pleasing. You can create a beautiful new menu for the passengers. You know, there are all these different things that you can do on that ship that will supposedly make it better. But if you're not handling the hole in the hull, it's all the rest of it is for naught. The ship's going down. And I used to be, before Lawrence asked me to help him start this organization, I was the executive director of a good-sized management consulting firm, and we applied that, we applied that um, uh, principle whenever we went in to help uh, a company. And we would, we would look at, at uh, what, what was their ideal scene, if everything was going perfectly, and then we would look at what's the existing scene and really look, look at the statistics, look at the staff, look at what was going on, you know, look at the all departments within it. Really look, not just listen to what people are saying, but look. And we would invariably find things that, you know, were very often really obvious when you looked, but nobody else had looked. And we would find what the true source of uh, that company, what was holding that company down and preventing it from moving forward. And if they spent their resources on fixing the sales department or, or enhancing the sales department, when the real problem was in their treasury department, for example, then the company would continue to, to uh, you know, decay and have the problems that they were having. But if you picked, if you if you fixed the real source of the problem, the actual hole in the hull, then you've you've utilized your resources to really turn around the decaying situation and move the whole scene one step closer to eventually getting towards the ideal scene. And when you do that, it gives you more resources 
It gives you more time. If you could actually handle that hole in the hole, in my analogy uh, on the Titanic, for example, you know, now you've got time to, uh, you know, feed the people, get them warmed up, get the engine fixed so you can get moving again. And, uh, you know, each one of these steps becomes the next most important step to handle so that you can eventually, you know, move that scene to an ideal ideal scene. But if you're sometimes people think, oh well, you know maybe this isn't the, the the biggest problem here or the or the the cause of it. But if we work on this, at least it will help it. Well, it's not necessarily true. You know, if you look at what's happening, for instance, in the Gulf of Mexico, um, the hole in the hole there is the contaminated waters, and yet there is an enormous amount of money that BP is paying. Um, uh, into these restoration projects, and uh, we are the only group that's talking about you've got to get the water cleaned up. There are non-toxic, effective solutions for doing that. And what's being talked about uh, is we need to build some new docks, we need to build some new, you know, new um, barrier islands. None of which does anything to clean the contaminated waters. And without cleaning those contaminated waters, the fishing industry is going to continue to collapse. People are going to continue to be ill. Um, it's going to continue to be dangerous to be eating seafood from the from the Gulf. I know that's not a popular viewpoint, and I hate saying it. But, but for nonprofit organizations, is this an issue of setting appropriate priorities and, and understanding? your options um, as you move in the direction of becoming green. In other words, you know, there's lots of things that you can do, and if you go to greennonprofits.org and you start um, the green uh, certification process, you earn 100 points, which are 50 actions uh, that you take. Some are required, but many are optional, and they're, they're about setting priorities for your organization. So is, is, is your message uh, a, mesh, a message of, of you know, go forth, but but deal with your priorities first, um, so that you have more time uh, to work on other projects. Exactly, and and uh, you know, in this certification process, for example, doing the research necessary to really see, you know, what are the things that if we put our resources towards doing that, towards changing that or enhancing that, uh, that are going to make the biggest impact. Um, uh, in you know, in achieving our goal in this, and because a lot of time and effort and finances can can be chewed up in doing maybe some small things that might be nice and might give you a feeling of, well, gee, we, you know, we did something. But the, the the what I'm recommending here is sit down and really figure out what's your goal for you know for this program of getting certified. And you know it's a it's a wonderful project to work on. It's an important project. Well, th thank you uh, for that. I mean, obviously you have a, a a global perspective. So this notion of of nonprofits becoming certified and completing a a body of of work um, that can be cumulative if uh, if lots of charities choose to publicly show their support for the environment in this way. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you had an opportunity, I think, uh, uh, earlier you were uh, listening to uh, uh, John Litzelswab, who was uh, with us as one of the newest uh, uh, certified green nonprofits, and, and he was talking about the very practical nature of, uh, that can come from this. So this is, this is not just theory. This is, this is real life. You can make these changes, and, and he was saying that can also affect positively the bottom line of your organization. Yes, that was that was very interesting to me. I, I um, uh, you know, I was fascinated to hear that. There's a lot of work that uh, your organization has uh, put into uh, caring for the environment and, and animals and and thinking pro proactively. Um, what do you think in terms of the footprint of the nonprofit sector, which is so large in the United States, but even larger around the world? Um, as a, a, a sector that that really should put a focus on what their impact on the environment is. Well, you, you know, uh, you're you're right. The 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 whole nonprofit environmental sector and and just nonprofits, uh, you know, as a whole, it's a it's an enormous industry, if you will. And so, if that industry, which 
which would tend generally to be more aware of the importance of, of going green and uh, conserving resources. Um, and if that industry really takes it on to each one and individually become more responsible in, in their own actions, um, that's definitely going to have an impact, no question about it. No question about it. Well, that, that's the uh, thought behind the GreenNonprofits.org uh, organization. It's a small organization with a, a big message, uh, and that is, as you were saying, you know, nonprofit organizations, not universally, but, but as a group, tend to be um, a little bit more environmentally sensitive or at least interested in being good uh, community-centered uh, 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 organizations. And this is one way that uh, a body of, of work uh, can be uh, completed and displayed to the to the community where concrete steps and changes have been made, um, and they, that while for one organization that may not be you know earth shattering for the environment, uh, cumulatively when you're talking about millions of of charitable organizations around the world, it really could be uh, quite a different uh, footprint uh, for the world. It's true, and, you know, it, it can never be understated the importance of setting a good example for others, even though maybe, you know, just, you know, your organization recycling your paper and recycling your plastics and that sort of thing, uh, you know, may not make, uh, you know, change the, the the course of what's happening in your city as far as the, the you know, pollution, um, but it, but it, it contributes to it, and but setting that example as well, um, uh, can have an enormous ripple effect outwards. And, and uh, of course, one of the other benefits that uh, that the uh, Green Nonprofit Organization hopes to have an influence on is, of course, if we're able to, and, and I know you've been extremely supportive, so thank you for uh, the, the energy that you've put behind uh, this Green Nonprofits movement, that if we can make inroads into getting the nonprofits themselves to be certified and be seen as green, to see themselves as green, well, each and every one of those organizations have boards of directors, and each of those boards of directors are, are often, you know, from corporations or from uh, their their communities, and and therefore it's a it's a way that maybe is a little bit less threatening for those folks to be able to become knowledgeable of these topics. That hopefully, and, and maybe it's a, maybe it's a pipe dream, but uh, hopefully that comes back full circle. Uh, to those corporations and to those communities to say, you know, this may be something that we need to uh, to rethink and, and that we ourselves uh, may uh, need to make some changes to become more environmentally sensitive ourselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Makes total sense. So it's a, so it's a, uh, hopefully a nice circle, but we'll, uh, we'll take time. And, of course, the important work of, uh, of an organization uh, like yours that uh, – would, would you view your organization as a, a – a, a uh, conservation organization or an environmental organization? How, how do you define yourself? Really, really both. You know, both environmental and conservation. Um, you know, we've we've we're looking at this from a, a viewpoint that's way above the playing field, if you will. You know, and looking at um, really these the, the the plant and animal kingdoms as well as the physical universe. Just this planet and the and the health of the planet and the, you know looking at it in a very holistic manner, and uh, you know the the symbiotic relationship between all life. Uh, our tagline is because none survive alone, and so when you're looking at solving a situation, you really have to look at all the different aspects of it. If you just go in to handle just the spotted owl, for example, then uh, you know and you're not looking at the impacts of what you're doing and how it's going to affect jobs in the area, how it's going to affect commerce and industry, how it's going to affect other wildlife, um, uh, how it's going to affect the, the residents of the area, et cetera. Uh, you know, solutions that are too narrow in their focus um, uh, and don't take into consideration the, the broader picture aren't usually going to end up lasting very long or being very effective. How how do you make those kinds of decisions when perhaps you don't feel that you're an expert um, and you're you're hoping that uh, um, that you can uh, do the right thing or move in the right direction, um, but your view your viewpoint you might not be able to see 
all of those uh, permutations of the various topic. You might see the owl, but you don't see the other. Um, do you do nothing unless you can see everything? No, I wouldn't. You know, I would never say do nothing. But I'll tell you, um, uh, what I would say is look, go go find out about those other things. You know, listen to if there's a controversial issue, and boy, you're really on one side of this thing um, because it really sounds right. But you haven't really looked for yourself. You've been just listening. Go look. You know, talk to people who have viewpoints on the other side, and and listen. Really listen and see if there's something um, valid that they're talking about, or that that you know, with more data, you might expand your your horizon of uh, you know, or your view of what's going on. If you do enough looking, it's a very interesting fact that that you know that I've that I apply in my life. If I'm puzzled or in mystery about something, um, it's because I don't have enough data, and I need to get more data. And so I go look for more data, whether I get online or I go talk to experts or, you know, call my mother-in-law or whoever, <laughs> you know, just get more information about this. And um, uh, and in the process of getting, you know, a lot of information about it, a real solution will usually become very obvious. It's an interesting thing because it's one of those things where, you know, we've all had that experience where you were really puzzling over something or worried about it and chewing on some bone of a problem and, and you know, gnawing away at it and unable to, to figure out a solution. And then all of a sudden you get some new piece of information that comes in and all the puzzle pieces suddenly fall into place and you hit yourself on your forehead and go, oh, my God, of course. This is what we'll do. This will handle it, and you go do that, and it handles it. And that, that when a person has done enough looking for themselves, that, will, that, that solution that makes sense, really makes sense, and that will really work, will fall out. But um, if, if a person just listens to, you know, um, uh, just listens to the media or, or, you know, just listens to one side of the viewpoint without really getting a full understanding of the whole scene. They can, they can spend and waste an awful lot of resources on things that either, you know, I mean, you see this all the time, solutions get introduced that just end up being the next problem you have to solve. And, you know, a perfect example of that is the Gulf. In actual fact, rather than use the product that they use to sink the oil, it truly would have been better if they had done nothing um, because Mother Nature would have cleaned that situation up faster than, than what, they, what they did. But the apparency, you know, by sinking the oil was that that was some sort of a solution. Now all those tar balls are just rolling up on the, on the beaches and will continue to for, for years. So um, these are lessons learned yes. that hopefully will carry forward. Um, and whether there was something nefarious in the, the initial reaction or just the best information that they had, it's organizations like yours that bring the best research forward and give the opportunity for those who are trying to make a difference to do the right thing um, the next time that there is a disaster. Exactly. Exactly. We're winding down on time, and Barbara, I have to say, it's always such a pleasure to have time with you and to learn from you and all the wonderful work that the Lawrence Anthony Earth Organization is doing. We've been with Barbara Wiseman here uh, on the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show. As we wrap up the show here, Barbara, how can uh, my listeners uh, reach you? You know, the uh, best way is through our website at www.theearthorganization.org. Org. Don't forget the V. Um, so T H E Earth Organization dot org, uh, and th that's really the best way. That's terrific, and a fantastic website that gives a broad uh, view of all the work that uh, you folks are doing around uh, around the world. And the release of that uh, important paper is about ten days away. That's right. That's right. I'm very excited about it. The the it, this really is specifically for oil spill response decision makers, um, although we wrote it um, in as much layman's terms as we could um, uh, so that we would have the broadest public public possible for it. Uh, I've, you know, I think it's a, actually a fascinating paper. The title of it is A Call 
for a 21st century solution in oil spill response, but it actually includes, uh, uh, you know, uh, a real solution to oil spill response that is um, cutting edge and uh, that has, uh, you know, all the regulatory aspects in place that, that could be used immediately to to clean up um, these oil spills. That's terrific. Well, thank you again, Barbara Wiseman, for uh, for doing such a wonderful job around the world, for caring about the environment, and for being my guest here on the Nonprofit Coach, the, the, the Green Show. Thanks, Ted, and thanks for the work that you do. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh, oh.